Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's teaching is Genesis 2, 15 through 16, and 3, 1 through 8. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of God to us. All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. And uh, man, it's good to be with you. We uh, basically love to take books of the Bible as our bread and butter and just slowly work our way through the books. So with the Gospel of Mark, we've been doing that. Uh, the plan is to do that for a little over one year. And we're, as a church, just relearning what discipleship to Jesus looks like, what it looks like to come behind Jesus and follow him in this life. But we're actually taking a break from that, as you've heard, and we're going to step into the season of Advent and take four weeks leading up to Christmas to kind of embrace this, this idea of longing. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't know if you grew up in church or not. I grew up in church, but I did not grow up in a church context that ever celebrated Advent or had that as a part of our calendar. And so some of us are kind of coming in with questions. Hey, what is, what is the season of Advent? What does it mean? And here's, here's kind of the big idea. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And it, it's a really fascinating origin. If you're into history, the origin was actually from the Rome uh, in the first century, they would have these emperors that would come in to, to town. They would return home after a long time of being away fighting and uh, basically having battles. They would be victorious in the battles and come back home. And that moment where they would re-enter and, and, and come back into the city for the first time, they, the whole uh, empire would throw the ceremony called Adventist Ceremonies, where they would welcome the emperor back in. And, and that was a way of saying, hey, your victories are our victories. And because of what you've done, you've brought us peace, you've brought us joy, you've brought us hope. And that was the origin of welcoming the emperor back to his rightful home. And the early church in that, it's fascinating, they saw this play out and they saw the reality of what that story really is about, which every culture's longing for, 
the reality that actually Jesus is the true king and he has been uh, victorious over his enemies. And this is the story of how Jesus has come to this world and will come again. And so the early church just basically hijacked the idea and saw the true form, the true, uh, what that, that Adventist ceremony was pointing to. And it became a Christian celebration. It became a part of the church calendar. And so he, he, here's two, two things to remember as we step into Advent. The first is that what we're doing in the season is we're actually looking back. We're looking back on Jesus and we're looking back on the fact that God who made all things, the unmade creator of all things, became a breakable human baby. We're looking back on God coming to this earth. But Advent primarily is actually looking ahead. And this is what the church has throughout our history celebrated and remembered that though God has come, though the king has arrived, though he has started to bring his kingdom, it's not yet fully here. There's still brokenness in our world. There's still dysfunction. There's still things that are disordered. Not everybody acknowledges that Jesus is the king. And one day he will return to this earth to make all things new. And so Advent really is not just a season of remembering It's also a season of longing. So I just wanna invite you to uh, process your longing over the next four weeks as we go through these stories. And here's how we're gonna do it. We're going to take four different locations in scripture and take those themes connected to the four traditional themes of Advent. And this is a way that we're stepping in. So let me give you the, the, the next four weeks. Today, Eden and hope. Next week, Egypt and peace. After that, exile and joy. And then the Sunday before Christmas, Bethlehem and love. So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. And I really hope this is helpful to you to process your own longing. Here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to take a second and pray for you. And then we're gonna jump in. Father, thank you for my friends in the room. And I just, I feel very acutely in this moment that there's nothing that I could say. There's nothing that I could do to restore hope to people who have lost it. There's nothing I could do to actually deposit hope into people. And so I pray just in this moment that you would do what you love to do, which is take your word and take your grace and take your presence and drive it deep into our heart. I pray for those that feel like they've just been lost in darkness. Pray that you would meet them today. And I pray for my friends that are just trying to figure out, is there really something to this Christianity thing? Should I really believe it? Is this trustworthy? I pray that you would meet them and their doubts meet them in their skepticism, and draw them in. Pray these things in your name. Amen. There's a fascinating book called Nothing to be Frightened of. And in that book, the author, Julian Barnes, he opens up with this line that's really stuck with me. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This is how he starts off his book. Now, it's fascinating because Julian Barnes, in his 20s, Uh, would describe himself as an atheist. Now he's in his 60s and he describes himself as an agnostic. So he's moved from atheism to agnosticism. He's moved from a position of saying, God doesn't exist, he's not real, to something else is out there, I just don't know what. He's what you might call a haunted skeptic, which many people in our culture are. And his whole book is fascinating because he's wrestling with what Friedrich Nietzsche called the death of God. Like we've killed God as a culture, now what? Is there anything of substance and meaning for us left? And he's grappling with really honest, deep, weighty things. Like uh, if death is the most natural, obvious thing in the world, why are we all so terrified to die? Like what even happens at death? 
Do we just disappear? Do we stop existing? I mean, what really happens after a person dies? How do we understand the purpose and meaning of life? Is there significance? If there is no God and it's kind of just a, a free-for-all among humanity, like who is right and who is wrong and how do we know the best course of the future? And I mean, this, his whole book is wrestling with this existential crisis of I don't believe in God, but I miss him. The reason I bring that up is because I actually think that what Julian Barnes is describing is just a microcosm of what's happening broadly in our society right now. Like it's happening broadly beyond just him. We're all kind of in this existential crisis together. There's a, there's a Catholic philosopher named Peter Kreeft, and he had something really insightful to say about our modern culture. He said, of the 21 great civilizations that have existed on our planet, according to Toynbee's reckoning, ours, the one that you and I find ourselves in, the modern West, is the first that does not have or teach its citizens any answer to the question why they exist. Think about that. We don't tell our generation or the generation coming after us, here's who you are and here's why you exist. And so as a culture, we've kind of lost the sense of the reality of God. We've pushed him out a little bit and now we're, we're defining our own identities and we're just trying to carve out a path that makes sense in this world. And it can be really, really scary and really weighty. And, and, and a lot of us find ourselves in that existential crisis saying, man, if God really doesn't exist, then how do we process life? It's filled with pain and dysfunction and brokenness and and evil and death. And what do we do about this? And how do we move forward in a way that actually can have hope? And, And I think what happens is it drives all of us to one of two extremes. On the one ditch is what I'll just call foolish optimism. And this is where, for whatever reason, we don't have good reason to believe it, but we just have faith that things are gonna get better over time. Like as technology advances, as education becomes more accessible, as we teach people to have better human relationships, as more justice initiatives are are coming down from government, uh, as we listen to each other better, like we are going to drive our way towards a utopia. It's gonna be up and to the right. Eventually things are gonna get better. The problem with that is that think about the, the, the amazing technological advances that we've experienced as a culture. Like we have unprecedented uh, growth in all kinds of ways and education is more accessible than it's ever been and there's justice initiatives coming out of the wazoo and all these different things and yet just take the last two years as a case study, we are not doing that great as a culture, right? We've got a global pandemic, there's rising racial tensions, there's a growing political divide that makes Thanksgiving super fun, right? When you're sitting next to your uncle and he really wants to know your political standpoint just so that he can blast you for the rest of the dinner. Like this is where we find ourselves, foolish optimism. Things are gonna get better. We don't know why, but that's what we believe. Even though actually it feels like things have gone backwards. Foolish optimism. The other ditch is depressed pessimism. This is when you take an honest account of our world and you go, really, things are gonna get better? Then why haven't they by now? Life is what it is. People are messed up. This is messed up. So I'll just numb out. We do what our pastors call existential whack-a-mole, which you've heard us talk about, where you have this like internal freak-out moment of like, what is the meaning of life? And then you're like, bam, vacation. You know, oh, I'm, I'm terrified to die. I'm gonna go get a latte. And you do this, I do this, we do this all the time where it's like, if I just spend more, if I buy that thing, if I go on a, on a porn binge, if I drink too much, if I do this thing, like I'm just gonna find a way to numb the pain, to stuff the questions, to have the existential crisis kind of muffled as much as I can. And, and it's just really depressed pessimism. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. 
there is a third way, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's the way of hope in a world that has no hope. Christians throughout history, and put what you think of Christians to the side for a minute, Christians throughout history have been resilient people of hope. In the middle of pain, which by the way, being a Christian doesn't uh, uh, help you avoid pain. Actually, you, you can receive just as much pain, sometimes more, as a follower of Jesus. Uh, in the middle of pain, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of cultural pushback and opposition, in the middle of life falling apart, Christians throughout history have been resilient in their hope. Why? How? And how do we today, if you're a follower of Jesus, become resilient people of hope? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Is there something offered of hope in this story? I think the answer is yes, and that's what we're gonna explore. But to do that, we actually have to know what was God's original intention in the first place? What went wrong with this whole thing? What is God doing to fix it? What is the point and why are we here? So in light of that, let's jump in. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. We're gonna go all the way back to the very beginning. Chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Uh, Humanity now is deeply embedded and connected with God. We don't have life apart from him. Verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. I love that imagery, God getting his hands dirty, planting a garden in the east, named Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the first thing I want you to see. This is creation. This is creation. Now, uh, you and I, when we think of the garden of Eden, or let's just say earth, uh, and we think of heaven, we tend to think of both of those places as very, very separate places. Earth is where humans live and heaven is where God lives. And those are very separated spaces. But in Genesis chapter one, two, and three, actually God's original intention was for heaven and earth earth to overlap in the Garden of Eden. And it functioned in many ways as a temple or a, a sanctuary, if you will. It was the place where God intended to make his home on planet earth with humans. So don't think of heaven as God's space and the Garden of Eden as as where Adam and Eve were just running around. It was originally intended to be, this is where Adam and Eve and humanity in general are dwelling in the presence of God. It says in Genesis chapter 3 that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, dwelling with them. One Old Testament scholar, he says it this way. He says, the Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Now, growing up, I kind of had this idea of the Garden of Eden that was like paradise. You're just kind of running around and you're eating food and you're sipping, you know, mimosas and a hammock. And like, how do we get back to that? That sounds awesome. It's like this perpetual vacation. But remember, that wasn't God's original intention. He actually created humanity in his image, meaning that we are created and placed on this earth to image God in the world, to reflect him to the world, to function as co-rulers with God over this planet. He, he told Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden, to guard and protect it, to cultivate it 
And his idea was this, that the Garden of Eden would expand out over the rest of the world so that eventually God's presence and his blessing and his love and his reign and his rule would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. This was God's original intention. Not that Adam and Eve would just sit around, not even that they would have an eternal worship service in this garden directed at God, but they would be co-rulers on his behalf, bringing his blessing to the world. And he placed these two trees in the garden that's really significant, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, uh, scholars and uh, theologians have debated, like, are these real trees? Are they not? Are they... Listen, I'm not saying that those questions don't matter. I think they matter, but that's really not the point of the trees. The trees represent two different ways for you and I to live. The tree of life represents a life of humble reliance on God, where you're saying God really is the king, and I'm putting myself under his authority, and I'm, 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 I'm sitting underneath him, and he has the right to define good and evil, right and wrong. He has the right to govern and uh, direct this world according to his own purposes and will. So the tree of life is a life of humble reliance on God, whereas the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the opposite. It's a life of sinful defiance against God, where you rise up and you say, actually, I'm going to define good and evil for myself. I get to be God myself. I get to be the king without you, and I'm gonna run this life in this world the way that I want. So God's one command here, as you read the story, is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't don't eat of it, because if you eat of this tree, you will die. And he means death as capital D, death. Like, you will die, meaning eventually your heart will stop, but also you will experience that disconnection from God and the resulting chaos and dysfunction that are unleashed on planet Earth as a result of your sin. Don't try to be the king. Live a life of humble reliance. But notice what happens. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice carefully the phrase Uh, that's used and how he words what he's saying. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is fascinating because the the lies that the enemy gives, there are at least two here, there's probably more, but at least two lies that the enemy gives here are actually representative of the lies that throughout our human existence, our enemy has been giving you and I ever since. The first lie is God is restrictive. Did you notice his tone? Did God actually say something so absurd? Don't eat of any trees that he made. Like, he's holding out on you. There's all these great trees, and, 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 and see, he's twisting. God only said, don't eat of this one tree, but he comes with this restrictive lie, this deception. God's holding out on you. There's really good things out there, and he doesn't want you to have them. It's lie number one. Lie number two is God is repressive. Oh, you're not gonna die if you eat of that tree. He knows that when you do, you're gonna become like God, and he's afraid of that. He wants to keep you low. He wants to keep you weak because he wants to be the only strong one. He's actually trying to oppress you. He knows that if you do this, you're gonna become like him and he's scared of that. Now, the sad irony here, friends, is that they actually already were like God. Remember, 
They were made in his image. They were the most like God that they've ever been. And what happens next is actually the thing that undoes that altogether. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now notice the sad series of events that follow. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? By by the way, this question from God is not like, I don't know where you are, where are you? This is like a parent to a child when the child is covered in chocolate all over the face. It's like, did you eat the chocolate? No, I did not eat the chocolate. That's the question that God is asking here. Where are you? He's trying to draw something out of Adam here. He knows where he's at. What happened? What happened? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Not a high point for Adam. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman following after her husband, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This friends is the second thing I want you to see. We call this the fall, the fall. Now that word fall, I think doesn't hold the type of gravity that I think it really should when we hear it. We tend to think of like, oh, a stumble or a trip as if God is just arbitrarily getting mad at Adam and Eve for eating some piece of fruit from some tree. It's like, what's the big deal, God? Why do you care about that certain piece of fruit? What's the big deal with them reaching out and eating it? But here's the big deal. Because what you have in the story is the enemy coming after God's most prized possession, the ones that he loved more than anything else, the pinnacle of his creation, his very own children. The enemy's coming after them, tempting them, lying to them, deceiving them. Then the second thing that happens is that they actually give in to the lie and they reject God and they go their own way. Instead of living a life of humble reliance, they reject him for a life of sinful defiance. And then finally, what you see as you keep reading the story is that this unleashes a cascade, cascading effects of chaos and dysfunction into the world. In chapter four, you have Cain who kills Abel and then you keep reading and it goes from bad to worse and things go darker and darker until you read this in Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here's the sad story, friends. Instead of multiplying beauty and God's blessing and his presence, and his love, and his reign, and his rule. Instead of multiplying that out into the world, they multiplied out sin, and dysfunction, and brokenness. Now, there's a lot of sides to sin, but I want to at least give you the two big categories to think about. Two big categories with sin that's unleashed into the world. The first category is guilt. Uh, We know guilt. Guilt is, I did something wrong, or there is a right thing to do, and I failed to do the right thing. So that's guilt. But as a result of guilt, there's a human experience that we have 
called shame. And I, I wanna make the case that shame is the driving narrative of every human story. That if you look at the brokenness of your family, your own brokenness in your own heart, it's driven by shame. Here's what shame causes you to do. It's that awareness that you are naked and that you need to be covered. Healthy shame brings you to God for covering. Toxic shame always leads you to doing one of two things, where you, you, you make loincloths for yourselves or you cover yourself And then you present a false version of yourself to other people. And the tragedy of what's happened with you and I is that our relationship with God marked by guilt now is also marked by shame where we hide from God and we cover up who we really are and then present to God and present to other human relationships a version of ourselves that is not really true. And that shame eventually drives us towards contempt where we have contempt for others in our lives. I mean, remember what Adam said? He actually had contempt for God. This is your fault, God. Had you never given me this woman, I never would have done this. Eve has contempt towards the enemy. Well, it's actually his fault. I'm not going to take responsibility for my own sin. And then that contempt eventually leads to contempt of self. So guilt is the first overarching big category of sin. But here's what I want to do for a second. I want to try to expand your definition of sin because I think that in the church, in our culture today, we've only talked about sin in a very one-dimensional fashion. You've sinned, you've done something to cut off relationship with God, which is true, but not the whole story. The second side of sin is corruption. Your sin and my sin unleashed something that's not just a vertical breaking of our relationship with God, but it has unleashed something in this very world. And I wanna show you some photos to try to sensitize you again to the corrupting reality of sin. Here's the first one. Now, as a culture, we've almost become like immune to photos like this with Feed the Children commercials and other things. And you see these kids in streets, both in other countries, but also in our own backyard, that do not have enough food to eat. There's real data on the amount of kids in our own state that go to bed hungry every single night. And the reality is that there's actually enough food in the world to feed everybody. But because of the curse of sin, it's led to a level of greed and a level of selfishness that basically exists in our world to keep those people from getting the help that they need. Here's another photo. This is from the 1960s, the peaceful protests, the sit-ins that was happening during uh, the race riots of the 60s. This is a black man peacefully protesting, saying, hey, I'm a human too. I get to sit on the bus, and a group of white men are yanking him off. And we think, man, this is so tragic that we live in a world where the curse of sin shows up as racism. But we could just as easily show pictures from the last two years. This is still alive and well. We've made progress, praise be to God, but there's so much more progress to be made. And behind racism is the curse of sin. Here's another photo that if you live here, you're very familiar with. Tornadoes, right? Not just in Oklahoma, but more. My gosh, why do we choose to live in the city of more? And uh, again and again, tornadoes come through and they, they knock out homes. Even in dadgum October, we're getting tornado. Like, how does that happen in October? Um, and you think, what's behind that? Well, what's behind the brokenness of our world is that really the earth itself has been fractured by sin. There's tornadoes and there's wildfires and there's earthquakes and there's tsunamis. Like something in the world has gone awry. Here's another photo. You remember this? This was uh, August 26th of this year. 13 U.S. soldiers were killed 
while trying to help innocent people get evacuated from the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. This was absolutely gut-wrenching for me to see and read about. I'm sure many of you did too. I, if, I'm, if I'm right on this, I think only one of them was not in their early 20s. I think they were all like 20, 21, 22-year-old. These are little boys and girls that lost their lives. And you think, what's behind the war? What is behind nations at odds with one another? It is the curse of sin. Here's another photo from just last week. This was at a Christmas parade. A man plowed into a crowd of people, killed five people that were there just to be a part of the parade, injured 48 others. And you think, man, why does senseless evil exist in our world? Senseless evil exists in our world because of the curse of sin. Here's another photo I'll show you. Now, this is obviously an extreme version of polarization, but we're familiar with this reality. Everybody in our moment is searching for an identity group to belong to, to fight for, to line up with and go to, go to battle on behalf of. And because of the curse of sin, there is an us versus them tribalistic mentality that's very much alive in our world today. Here's my point. We could keep going on and on and on and just read the top five news headlines of any day in our world. But here's the point, friends. Something has happened. And the Bible defines that as sin, where it's brought about guilt between us and God and corruption in our world. And the painful cost of what happened in the garden, the painful, tragic fall, led about basically Adam and Eve, humanity getting pushed out of the Garden of Eden, which is another way to say they got pushed out of the very presence of God. They lost his presence. Peter Lightheart, a theologian, says this, after Adam's expulsion from the garden, holy space became taboo, inaccessible space. Yahweh, which is the name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh stationed cherubim at the gate of the garden to guard against every attempt at reentry. From Adam on, if anyone wanted to enter the presence of God, he would have to pass through the sword and fire of the cherubim. Listen to this. No man could return to feast in the presence of God unless he first died. Here's where this leaves you and I in the fall, is that it leaves us in this place where we are frantically searching for the life that we once had because deep down behind all of the, the, the noise, behind all of the stuff, there's somewhere really deep down, even if you don't get to it, but late at night on occasion, there's something in you that knows that something has gone wrong in this world, that this is not the way that it was supposed to be. Death exists, pain exists, injustice and evil and suffering exist, and we are longing. We are longing for this world to be put back right. As J.R.R. Tolkien said in a letter, he said, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing at our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. And that takes us to where we have that foolish optimism, just more education and better initiatives and more government protocols and better laws and, and just you know, teach people how to get along. And eventually as technology advances, we will figure this out. We'll be good humans or depressed pessimism. Man, what's the point? People are awful. Life is awful. Nothing's gonna change. Change. Let's just numb out and try to ignore this whole thing while we're here. And yet, in this story, if this is where it stopped, we would have absolutely no hope. By the way, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Some of you are like, this is so depressing. Yeah, it is. It really is. But the story doesn't stop here. 
Here is the hope of Christmas. Genesis chapter three, look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, our enemy, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then look at this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there's going to come a descendant of Eve. The daughter of Eve is going to have a baby and that daughter of Eve's baby He is going to to lay a death blow to you. He's gonna crush your head. And in the process of crushing your head and bringing about your destruction, you will bruise his heel, but that'll be done for you. This is the first promise that we have of a coming king who is going to fix this broken world. Look at verse 21 and look at what else God decides to do. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God deals with their shame in the moment, and he makes a promise. One day, someone's gonna come to crush the head of Satan's sin and death. This leads us to the third thing I want you to see real quickly, which is redemption. God's promise one day to send a deliverer, a serpent crusher, to destroy Satan, sin, and death. It all culminates, the story culminates. And I just wanna take John's gospel, the first few verses of John's announcement of Jesus to the world and listen to what he says. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. That, that's supposed to flash back in your head to something. In the beginning, what do you think of? Think of Genesis. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When you read John 1 carefully, you realize that what's happening here is another creation account, but this time it's not creation and the fall, it's recreation and redemption. Jesus comes as the very word of God, not as this king from heaven flaming in his glory, but as a breakable tiny baby born of woman, born under the law so that he could redeem people like you and I under the law. And do you remember that quote from Peter Lightheart that if anyone wants to go back into the Garden of Eden to feast with God, they're gonna have to what? Have to die first? Well, this is what Jesus does. He actually dies on a cross bearing our guilt and our corruption and our shame upon himself. And he enters into the presence of God in his resurrection so that you and I could have a seat at the table. He brings the very presence of God back to this world and back to you and I. This is the hope of Christmas is that our king has come and he has crushed the head of our enemy. A picture speaks a thousand words and I just wanna show you this photo. You've probably seen this artwork before, but on the left is Eve, brokenhearted over her sin, filled with shame, wrapped up by the enemy and, on, and, and comforting her is Mary, pregnant with Jesus, our Messiah, our King, and Mary's heel is on the serpent's head. This is why 
Jesus came. He lived and he died and he rose again so that he could restore us to the presence of God and just like he did with Adam and Eve, clothe us of our shame. And here's how the story ends. Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The last thing I want you to see is the restoration. This is coming for us. He is coming to make all things new. Now notice it says not, this is what I grew up thinking, make all new things. Doesn't say that. He came and is coming to make all things new. In other words, this world is not like the Titanic that's going to hell in a handbasket. God loves you and he loves this world and he hates the brokenness and the dysfunction that sin has unleashed on it. And he isn't bringing us to heaven. He's bringing heaven to earth so that this world that we live in could actually be restored and he will make all things new. The best description of this, by the way, that I've found is thank God not in the left behind books because those are trash and you should never read those or buy those. Um, the, the, the best image for this comes from Beauty and the Beast, ironically enough. Great film, not the new one, the new one's subpar. But the original is fantastic because in the original, what you see happening is the curse being lifted when Belle kisses the beast and you've got these humans that are trapped in inanimate objects in a teacup and in a dresser and in a bed and all these other things. You got these humans that are, they're deep down, they're really human, you just can't see it. And this dark, gothic, ugly castle. But when the curse is lifted, beauty explodes, light explodes, the castle is put back the way that it was supposed to look and people who really are human become fully alive as human people again. That's what's gonna happen when Jesus returns. This is why you can have hope because God came to restore all things. I'm not gonna argue with you about this, but the best Christmas song is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It just is. It's the best Christmas song. The second best Christmas song is Joy to the World. Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts, not about the first coming of Jesus, not about Christmas, not about the incarnation, This song, Joy to the World, was actually written about the final return of Jesus. He was overlooking this plot of land, thinking about the return of Jesus. And with that in mind, listen to these words. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Now listen to this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Why? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So friends, if you have the effects of the curse in your life, if you see the brokenness of this world, if you're tired of the pain and the mourning and the longing and the the loss and the hurt, and the dysfunction, if that makes you weary, he comes to make his blessings flow as 
far as the curse is found. If it's found in your life, he came to restore you back to what you were supposed to be and to this world. So where do we go from here? I need to shut the sermon down because it's already too long. Here's where we go from here. I wanna ask you to allow this season to stir up eschatological hope in your heart. That's a nerdy way to say when Jesus comes back, all those things that we talked about really will happen. Let that stir up the appropriate type of hope in your life. Yes, we have a real enemy who really does hate us. Yes, we live in a world that's been deeply touched and marred by sin and guilt and corruption. But also, yes, God himself has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And also, yes, we live between redemption and restoration. So what does that mean for us? It means, hey, don't become too brokenhearted by our world. We know the end of the story. Jesus wins and he wipes away every tear from every eye. But don't become too excited about our world either. Because remember, we live not at the end of the story. We're in the the middle, redemption and restoration, somewhere in the long waiting. And Advent is meant to be a season where we bring the appropriate level of hope to God and we long. Allow the season to stir up eschatological hope. And the last thing I want to invite you to do is bring your personal longings to Jesus. You have longings. Maybe it's for your health. Maybe it's for your family. Maybe it's for a child. Maybe it's for something going on in this world, a relationship. I don't know what your longing is, but bring your longings to Jesus. He's not turned off by it. He's not frustrated. He actually came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found.